within the play, there is a play within the play. As long as she took care of the ball, she wasn't afraid. Every night, she'd hold the ball right to her nose and she'd say, Samuel, Geraldo, Jonathan, Drew, what are we going to do with you? We love it's time for the apple seat filled with stories for you and your family since 2013 we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers i'm sam payne such a pleasure for me to be with you and to be with you every time that you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart you know we're constantly making plans aren't we i mean we human beings you know we're setting goals working toward them no one ever got anywhere, they say, by sitting back and waiting for what they want to simply wander by. Getting what we really want in life usually takes a lot of effort, a lot of planning. But even the best laid plans can go awry. In fact, they often seem to. And when they do, we have to figure out how we're going to solve our new problems, get ourselves back on track. And in today's stories, we'll get to see how unexpected situations arise and how the protagonists of the stories that we bring you today will deal with them. You're going to hear a story from Odds Bodkin. In fact, is part of uh, the Odyssey, Homer's epic poem. This uh, little piece of it, Odds Bodkin calls the belly of the horse. And you're going to love that musical storytelling extravaganza. And you'll hear a story called Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew from the storyteller Linda Gorham. But first, to introduce the first story, that we're going to hear today. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. We're going to hear a story from the very wonderful Jay O'Callaghan. Tell us a little bit about the red ball. Yeah, so this is the story of a little girl named Miriam who is given the gift of a little red ball on a paddle, which she promptly pulls right off, and it (laughs) becomes her very best friend in the world. Oh, you know, I had one of those paddle balls, a wooden paddle with a red ball connected by an elastic to the paddle, and you try to kind of bang the ball and have it snap back and hit the paddle again like a yo-yo and not your face. (laughs) And I never did get very good at it. I mean, I tried and tried and tried and tried. But yeah, so this this story is already bringing back uh, memories for me just with your description of it before we even hear it, right? But here's Jay O'Callaghan with the red ball here on The Appleseed. This is the story of the red ball. Miriam was in the kindergarten. Her father came home one day in a paper bag. He said, Miriam, I got a present for you. I'm worried about your coordination. She said, what's the present? He reached into the bag and he took out a wooden paddle. In the middle of the paddle, there was an elastic and it went all the way to the red rubber ball. What you do, Miriam, is you pull the paddle straight back and the ball's supposed to hit it. I could do it easy when I was your age. You do it. Miriam took the paddle and She pulled the elastic between her thumb and her finger. When she came to the ball, she pulled the elastic out of the ball. She handed the paddle to her father. She said, you have the coordination, I'll have the ball. Miriam, she went down to her room. Her father had the paddle. Miriam was an only child, no brothers, no sisters. So the ball became important. At night, just before she went to sleep, she'd say, good night, ball. Good night, Miriam. She'd put the ball under the pillow. If she woke up at four in the morning because of a creak, she'd reach under the pillow. Hey, ball, you scared? Yeah. Don't be scared. I'll take care of you. Thank you. You're welcome. 
As long as she took care of the ball, she wasn't afraid. Every night, she'd hold the ball right to her nose, and she'd say, Want a story? Yes, be quiet. We'll be quiet. Once upon a time, cool, that's not the end. Oh, once upon a time, there was an old tulip that got bent. Cool, you're welcome. <laughs> once in a while, when she was in a wild mood, she'd say, Want a scary story? No. One night, you were all by yourself at the edge of the forest. Something was coming. It was a bear. It was the only bear in the world that eats red rubber balls. The bear came out of the forest. It was so big it touched the moon, but it didn't see you until it saw you. The bear reached down. You didn't have a chance. But I ran out. I kicked the bear, ran away. Thank you. You're welcome. She must have made up 400 stories for the red ball. And then the first grade came. She was in her bedroom, and she said, Hey, ball, what if I get on the wrong school bus? What if I never get home? Bye. She put the ball into her drawer, and her mother brought her down to the bus stop. She said, Miriam, I don't have time to drive you this year, but the bus is going to come right down here, kindergarten through sixth grade, so you'd be perfectly safe. Well, Miriam, she hated the bus stop that first week. Bus is 20 minutes late. There were no other kids. And so the second week of the first grade, she got the ball out, brought it down to the bus stop, and she put her hands right together, left hand and right, and she started to throw the ball left in to right, left to right, left in to right in. Set too high? Yes, you have to get used to it. All right. Miriam, every day she'd be throwing the ball, and after a while, her whole body would be going back and forth, left in to right in to left in. Every day the bus had come. The kids, kindergarten through sixth grade, got into the habit of looking out the window because she always had the red ball. It was becoming famous at school. One rainy day, buses coming, sixth graders in the back are all saying, Hey, Miriam, one of the red ball, raining too hard. They looked out in the rain, and there was Miriam throwing the ball back and forth, left hand or right hand. Hey, ball, do you mind the rain? Yes, you shouldn't. Why? Because you made a rubber. Oh, December day came. The bus came down. Everyone looked out, and the snow was falling on the red ball. Miriam was throwing it back and forth. You cold? Yes, all right. Here we go, into the furnace. She put it in her mouth and breathed. Thank you, welcome. <laughs> in the second grade, Miriam, she started throwing the ball right over her head and trying to catch it and back. Well, she would drop it. It would go all over the street. But then she did something different. She would throw it behind her. It would come over her shoulder right down in front of her. Woo! What's the trouble? Too high. You must be brave. No, I mustn't. She threw it again. Woo! What's the trouble? Woo! I'm going to get sick. No, you're not. She threw it way up again. Woo! What's wrong now? Woo! I was so scared I turned red. You're red anyway. Oh! Then Miriam did something I can't do. She would throw the ball behind her, but she would leave her right hand behind her against her back. She would turn around, and the ball would come right down into her hand. That's incredibly hard. She could do it nine out of ten times, spring of the second grade. One spring day, she threw it straight up and back, kept the hand back there, and the ball came right down into her hand. And these huge guys were running college basketball players. One of them said, hey, look at this kid. She caught it. These hulks came over. Hey, kid, you're terrific. I know I really am. In the third grade, she would throw the ball back and forth, doing a homework. Three times seven, twenty-one. A four times seven, twenty-eight. A seven times seven, I don't know. Hey, Willie, what's seven times seven? Miriam finally had a friend, Willie. He was a kindergartner. And Willie loved her. 
because she was always moving, and Willie would be moving back and forth with his thumb in his mouth. Three times seven, twenty-one. Willie, take your thumb out. I can't understand you. Not my thumb. Speech candy. Willie, it is not candy. It's a thumb. No, it's a hot dog. Miriam and Willie, they were always together. One cold October day, the temperature shot down. Miriam, she was throwing the ball back and forth. She had a little gray jacket. She was freezing. Willie, I'm so cold. I wish the bus had come. Willie, I'm talking to you. Willie didn't hear her. He was wearing a ski parker. One of those ski parkers where you zip down the hood and it goes way over the face. It belonged to his cousin who was a senior in high school. Willie looked like a waddling igloo. Willie, I'm cold. His thumb waved up in the air. I'm not cold. All right, Willie, it is time for the game. Every day she played the same game. She would throw the red ball up and pretend it was the earth, and the two of them jumped into the earth somewhere. Willie, today we jumped into Africa. It is so hot here. Oh, Willie, look at that. It's a lion. I'll protect you. Not a lion, it's a little kitty kitty. It's my game. That's a giraffe. Not a giraffe, it's a tree. You don't believe it's Africa, you poor kid. Willie, do you feel the python snake on your back? Now it's on your hood. Now it's in your face. Got you. I don't want to play that game anymore. Well, Miriam and Willie. On Halloween, they went out together. Willie, he loved candy more than anything on earth, but he hated the dark. Willie was dressed like a cowboy. He had a mask, and he had two plastic six-guns to shoot the dark. Miriam, she was dressed like a ghost. Her father was there. Willie was holding Miriam's hand every time he turned. Oh, I thought you was a ghost. <laughs> Willie got only three candies and he ran home and Miriam went all over the neighborhood. She would knock on the doors and say trick or treat and the neighbors would say, who's the ghost? I'll throw the red ball if I don't get candy. Miriam, good to see you this year. Here you go. Eight o'clock, she and her father, they ran into the living room. She dumped out the candy. Dad, the ball's gone. The red ball's gone. Miriam, I'll get you another one. I'll get you the pal. Daddy, I've had that almost three years. Please, Dad, get the flashlight. They went all over the neighborhood looking for the red ball, and they didn't find it. She got up at 5 in the morning, looked all over the neighborhood, didn't find the red ball. She was waiting for the school bus, and she was absolutely still. Willie was scared. Three times seven, she wouldn't look at him. The bus came, and those kids, kindergarten through six, they looked out. Then they stared at her. They had never seen her still like that. But they didn't guess. She got on the bus, and the driver said, Miriam, 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 what's the trouble? No trouble. I lost the red ball at Halloween. Well, she fell apart, and the whole school heard about it. That day, the sixth grade put on a play, and everyone was there. And at the end, the principal came out on the stage. I enjoyed the play very much. I could even hear some of you this year. That was a pleasure. You all know that Miriam is in the audience, and you know she lost the red ball. Well, I'm going to give a prize to anyone who finds a red ball. This is the prize, teacher came out on the stage. Your parents will be furious. I'll take care of them. Ten pounds of candy if you can find the red ball. There must have been 70 kids and four teachers who looked for the red ball. Nobody found it. Next morning, Willie was running down to the bus, and he kicked a leaf, and there was the red ball. All he could think of is candy. He made his mother drive him to school. He ran into the office, and the secretary leaned over the counter. What do you want, Willie? and his hand shot up with the red ball. <laughs> Willie, you found it, you found the red ball, where was it? <laughs> he pointed up in the air, nice to talk with you, Willie. <laughs> All right, Willie. Now here is 10 pounds of candy. If I give it to you now, will you eat it in front of the students all day, make them jealous? And he nodded, yes. <laughs> the principal will give it to you at three o'clock. Three o'clock, 
There were 300 kids around Willie's bus. Mr. Devitt, the principal, said, Willie, you're a hero. Do you know that? Here's the candy. Willie was so excited he could barely get on the bus. <laughs> he got on the bus, sat down beside Miriam. She had the red ball bus, drove off sixth graders in the back row saying, hey, Willie, how about a candy? He shook his head, no. <laughs> Willie, you don't want to, you don't want to be a cheapskate. <laughs> he gave three candies away and the next day the bus came. Everyone was staring out the window and there was Miriam throwing the ball back and forth, three times seven, 21. And there was Willie with his thumb in his mouth going back and forth, three times seven, 21. They got on the bus and there was a big cheer because Miriam had the red ball and Willie had chocolate all over his face. And that's the story of the red ball. <laughs> that was Jay O'Callaghan with a story called The Red Ball. And there is no more dynamic storyteller than Jay O'Callaghan, is there? There really isn't. <laughs> he just, I don't know what it is about him, but Every time I listen to a J.O. Callahan story, I just feel nostalgic and comforted. <laughs> you know, uh, we talked to J.O. Callahan uh, some years ago on the Appleseed, had a lengthy conversation with him. And you can find some of those old conversations by visiting us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There's an archive there filled with stories that uh, many of them, of course, are already favorites, right? But uh, others will become favorites as you listen to them. There's lots to listen to there at byuradio.org. And again, we had a conversation with Jay O'Callaghan, and I used the word desperation. I said, there's always this kind of desperation in the way that you tell a story. And he didn't like my word. He, he said, it's, it's not so much desperation as it is great love. <laughs> I love that. I do, too. You can it's definitely great. feel that. Yeah, you can. And Jay O'Callaghan tells stories that are old and new, personal tales as well as folk tales. And it was a delight to hear the red ball from Jay O'Callaghan. Kendra, thanks for bringing it to us. Thank you. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Bain. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story from Jay O'Callaghan, a story called The Red Ball from a collection of tales called Around the Year with Jay O'Callaghan. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear from Odds Bodkin, a musical storytelling version of, of part of the Odyssey, Homer's epic poem. And you'll hear from Linda Gorham as well with a story called Samuel Coraldo Jonathan Drew. You're not going to want to miss a word of any of those tales. And since we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love, here Here's a memory of mine. It's a memory of the growing independence I felt as a child with an allowance and a bicycle and places to go. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. There are a lot of little steps toward independence. When I was a little kid and had neither change in my pocket nor a bicycle, if I wanted a candy bar, I had to rely on the good graces of my mom or dad who might take me along to the store with them and reward me with a treat if I didn't make the trip miserable. 
And then there came a day when I began to get an allowance, 50 cents per week. At first, all in nickels, with a requirement that I save a nickel of it. My parents were trying to teach me something, so really 45 cents, nine nickels. It was a step toward independence. Now, when I went to the store with my mom or dad, I could choose a treat independent of whether or not I had behaved. I had decisions to make, too. I could blow 45 cents on a candy bar and a frosty root beer, or I could buy one now and one a couple of days from now. The possibilities that came with independence were endless, but not as endless as the possibilities were after I had not only an allowance, but an allowance and a bike. My first bike was a yellow Royce Union with coaster brakes and a banana seat. And now I didn't even have to wait until my folks were going to the store. I could go my own dang self and buy my own dang treat with my own dang money. More independence meant more possibilities, and it also meant more decisions. By the time that both my brother Joe and I had bikes, we would often hit the road together in a quest for penny candy and a soda. We had a couple of places to choose from in town. We could head down our country road to what was then Burgess Market to get our loot, the little grocery store on the west side of the city park. Or we could ride about a block and a half farther south toward the edge of town to Super Saver. Super Saver was the only gas station in town, and back then it sat at what in our minds was the edge of civilization. Super Saver represented a further leap toward the unknown. A ride to Super Saver was a greater assertion of the independence that came with having a pocket full of change and a bicycle. It was also more dangerous. Both Burgess Market and Super Saver sat right on Main Street, but to get to Burgess Market, you just traveled down our country road. You didn't have to ride on Main Street. You just had to go to it. But to get to Super Saver, you had to ride for hundreds of yards on Main Street itself, cars whizzing by. Using one's independence to choose to go to Super Saver meant taking greater care, exercising more diligence. We mastered it and came home with our pockets full of Super Saver candy as often as we came home with Burgess Market candy in our pockets. Well, Joe and I slowly got older. Our little bicycling legs grew stronger. I swapped out the yellow Royce Union for a red 10-speed from coast to coast hardware. My brother and I started getting little jobs, watering the neighbor's horses for a buck a week. And as our 45 cents in nickels came to be joined in our little pockets by actual paper money, and as our transportation became more refined, we set our sights on targets that were farther off. We wanted the candy not at Burgess Market, an easy ride down our country road, nor at Super Saver, a block and a half farther down Main Street, but we wanted the candy at Country Corner, the convenience store spelled with two Ks, a full mile and a half farther south on a then desolate road called Alpine Highway. Country Corner was in a whole different town. Cars sped by with abandon, but we had the bikes, we had the money, we had the independence. We wanted to take the ride. And late one afternoon, the whole family was on a walk. We had walked all together from our house down to Burgess Market for a gallon of milk or something to go with cookies my mom was going to make. My mom, my dad, me, my brother Joe, our little brothers Dave and Josh, and Eliza, our baby sister. 
It was a walk, but Joe and I had our bikes with us. We loved our bikes like you loved yours, and so of course we had them with us. It was late in the afternoon when we left the store to head back home. But Joe and I caught each other looking down the road, the road that led out of town, the road that led to Country Corner. And almost in unison, we asked our folks if we could please, please ride there if we were careful, careful, careful. Well, incredibly, our folks said that we could go. So the rest of the family headed off toward home, and Joe and I mounted up and headed south along Alpine Highway. We passed Super Saver. We kept going. We rounded the low hill that served as the de facto edge of town. The sun dipped behind the mountains to the west. Dusk. The cars driving back and forth on Alpine Highway clicked on their headlights. They were moving at Alpine Highway speeds, faster than Main Street speeds, and a lot faster than country road speeds. The wind began to pick up, exacerbated by the air that whipped by us as cars passed. Well, I don't know if it makes this a worse story or a better one to say that we didn't make it to Country Corner that night. As the light grew dimmer and the headlights brighter and the cars faster and the wind noisier, Joe and I stopped our bikes together and decided together to turn back. We caught up with my mom and our little brothers and our baby sister and our dad, and we offered to carry the milk even as we walked our bikes along. There would be other rides. We'd go farther than Country Corner, much farther, but not that night. That night, the necessary decisions that came with the possibilities that came with our independence led us safely home with our family. Home and free to explore the possibilities that came with our ever-growing independence on another day. And that night, the milk and cookies we enjoyed before bed were sweeter by far than the candy we dreamed of buying at Country Corner. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Maybe you had a country corner in your memory, a place where you wanted to go and get candy from the boxes behind the counter or in the convenience store shelves. Maybe you have a bike memory or a memory of your growing independence as a kid. Those memories are all worth sharing as stories. And the sharing of those stories around the kitchen table or the living room can make for memories that last a lifetime. It's worth doing. And of course, if the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love, we want you to share them with us. Send us an email, write the memory down, and share your story with us at theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. Edu. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear a story in just a moment from Odds Bodkin, the wonderful musical storyteller who will share for you just a little bit of the story of Homer's Odyssey, the story of Odysseus and his companions. This is a story that starts in the Trojan War. It's called The Belly of the Horse, and you're going to hear that in just a moment. But uh, first, how about a conversation with a friend? 
stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the books that we read, the films that we love, the songs that we remember, the meals that we share, and of course, through the tales that are passed along from teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations. And talking about how some of those stories get into our lives is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. I'm very, very pleased to be joined in conversation by Ed Stivender, all the way from his home in Pennsylvania. Ed, such a pleasure to have you with me. Oh, thanks for having me, Sam. It's nice to be with you. You know, I got to tell you, I I am a sometime sort of closet Shakespeare actor. Every once in a while, I'll yeah, involve yeah. myself in a community production of a Shakespeare play. And oh, yeah. I, I have learned to make a point of sharing a photograph from that experience with you by email, because I know how much you love Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and and uh, there's a particular Shakespeare play that we want to talk about here today. Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. It's a comedy, supposedly. It's certainly a, a romance. I first heard of it musically on the radio when they would play uh, Mendelssohn's wonderful suite of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and th those uh, tunes are still with me. Uh, and so when it came around to going to college and having the Cap and Bells Dramatic Society do a Shakespeare show every year, I joined up with the Cap and Bells and in my freshman year played the second messenger in Richard III. And in uh, the next year, I was in King Lear, in which I played the fool, which is a whole nother experience. But in 1966, Dr. Ali, the wonderful director of St. Joseph's College, who did one Shakespeare show a year, decided that he would have a summer festival. And he called it the Philadelphia Shakespeare Festival. And I auditioned and made it and was cast in the show and had a great time. There were two shows in the Shakespeare Festival that year, 1966. One show was the Scottish play. Well, we all got moved up to a different position in the Midsummer Night's Dream. And I got moved up from playing an accompanist to playing Francis Flute, the bellows mender. But in the children's version of the piece, I was moved up to play Puck. It was a great cast. One of the members of the cast was a fellow named Al Inorato, who ended up being a fairly successful uh, playwright later on. Most important figure in that cast was a guy named Tom Figginshoe, who, when Bottom took a dive, moved up to the position of Bottom. And so I played Francis Flute opposite Tom Figginshoe as Bottom, which allowed for great uh, time and wonderful bonding. The um, Midsummer Night's Dream is a lovely play because it's about doing shows. Yeah. yeah. The, within the play, there is a play within the play. Um, six mechanicals, working class fellows, say that they're going to do a show for the Duke uh, and the Duchess, Theseus and Hippolyta, um, on their wedding night. And they go to the woods and plan the show. And <laughs> it's lovely because they, they try to make decisions about theatrical artifice 
that is based on rational working man's thinking, such as how are we going to have the moon in the show? Well, the first question is, does, does the moon shine that night? Well, all we have to do is open the casement window and we'll have the actual moon shining on the stage, but then they figure that's not gonna work. So they end up having a character play the moon and having a character play the wall. And it's a lovely, um, lovely set of uh, uh, things that happen. Okay. They're so, they're so sincere, aren't they? They're so sincere. Oh, they are. And they want so badly to do a good show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, the fellow Bottom uh, thinks he can do it all. And he, he wants to play all the parts. But the most wonderful part of playing Puck was the fact that we presented at the Academy of Music, where I had seen the Tabernacle Choir from Temple Square play Messiah 10 years earlier. And it was so lovely to be on the stage, to look up and see that two and a half ton chandelier, see that fifth balcony where my father and I would sit on a regular Saturday night and play the Academy of Music in 1966. It was a, a fabulous moment in, in, in my experience. Later on in 1971, I went to see Peter Brooks production of the Midsummer Night's Dream at the Academy of Music once again. And that that production, I don't know if you've ever seen it, you can probably get it on YouTube now, was just beyond, beyond, just a brilliant thing. It was so effective that my friend and I, after the show was over, we went to the park and we wept for an hour and a half just wept from the relief of the, this amazing experience of Peter Brook, the genius Peter Brook, doing this really fine uh, version of a show. The, the words of which I knew, but the production they did was so beyond it. Later on, when I became a solo storyteller, I decided that I should do a one-man show version of the, the uh, play within a play, the, the mechanical show of Pyramus and Thisbe. And, um, I, I did a version, I did it a couple of times, uh, playing every part. Now there are 12 characters in this play at this one scene where the mechanicals present, present their thing. And it was really a bit beyond my um, skill set, but I had a great time doing a one-man show of Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, I'm thinking about that moment, the, the, the moment when you step onto the stage as a performer yeah. in the space where you have so often been a spectator, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of the rite of passage that that is. Oh, yeah. And the impact that that can have on a person, right? Yeah, it was quite wonderful, quite wonderful. What a pleasure to have Ed Stivender with us. Ed, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thanks for letting me talk about my salad days. <laughs> There's a lot more coming up on The Apple Seed. You're listening to The Apple Seed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Apple Seed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Apple Seed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago, we had a conversation with the terrific Philadelphia storyteller Ed Stivender, and what a pleasure that was. And, of course, at the top of the hour, you heard a story called The Red Ball from the Massachusetts storyteller Jay O'Callaghan. 
And up next, we've got something from Odds Bodkin. Of course, Odds Bodkin is well known for his ability to decorate his storytelling with captivating music that sets the scene for the tales he weaves. He plays lots and lots of instruments, and it's always a full show to hear an Odds Bodkin story. And today we're going to bring you the beginning of his telling of the Greek epic, the Odyssey. Now, in this story, Odysseus and his men hide in a giant horse made of wood to trick the enemy Trojans into letting them into the city of Troy. This is the beginning of an epic tale of gods and goddesses, nymphs and cyclops, and most of all, one man's journey home. Here's the belly of the horse from Odds Bodkin here on the Appleseed. This is the tale of Odysseus of Ithaca, master of landways and master of seaways. Darkness and quiet, broken only by the soft breathing of men held close so that it is not loud. Quiet, you! But, Odysseus, I have to cough. Choke on your cough if you must. But make no sounds in here. Odysseus of Ithaca, a prince in the Achaean army, crouched in the close, sweaty darkness of a belly made of wood. And the thin threads of light left from Helios' chariot made their way into the close darkness where he and his men waited. And he thought to himself, Well, if this trick does not work, then we are all dead. The Trojans will find us here. And either way, I can quit this fruitless war. Ten years, ten years I have fought upon these plains of Troy and watched my best companions die. For what? For a woman. Helen, the most beautiful woman in the world. Some say it began as a contest amongst the gods. The gods who toy with us as if we were players at their whims. I amongst the gods. And Paris, stripling Paris, son of Priam, king of this great city, won the prize and it was Helen, granted by Aphrodite. And it was all my fault, it's all my fault. Clever Odysseus, they call me. 
stupid Odysseus, I think. I was so long ago. We all wanted Helen. All we Greek chiefs. And what did I say? I said, now listen, all of you. We must make a pact, eh? Amongst all of us. For Helen can have but one husband, and therefore we must all make a pact. Whomsoever she chooses will find no grief at our hands. And if anything ill should befall the couple, we will come to their aid. And I looked at all the chiefs, and they called, I, Odysseus, I, Odysseus, I, I, I. And they all agreed, and we made the pact. And Helen married Menelaus, and Paris stole her away. Right under Menelaus' nose, in Sparta, no less. And brought her here to this great city. And ever since then, we have made war upon them. Ten years and... Odysseus. Yes, what, what? Odysseus, the Trojans, they're coming out of the gates. Yes, they will come out of the gates, and they will see this great horse made of wood here upon the plain. And they will see that the ramparts are down, and all of the Greek ships have sailed off. And they will think, ah, ten years, and at last the Achaeans have turned tail and left. And they will take us into their city, and we will bite them a wound in their belly, from which they will not recover. Are all the swords wrapped? Why, Odysseus? Aye, Captain. Aye. Good. No clink of metal on metal must be heard. So shh. I wonder how my wife, Penelope, is. Ah, Penelope. Not so beautiful as your cousin, Helen, no. The, the lines of anxious young suitors did not form at your father's palace door. But more often than not, beauty runs not upon the skin, though it glow in Helios' light, but deep in the heart. You, my Penelope, you were she whom I chose and who chose me. And it has been ten years since I held you in my arms. And, and, Captain. Yes. The throngs, they're outside the halls. Yes. Oh, Odysseus, there, there's two priests there. Priests. What are they doing? Oh, they're, they're shaking their heads. They're saying, don't bring it in. Don't bring it in. By oh, the gods, this is not good. They've, they've, they've got a spear. They're throwing. Now they know it's hollow. But the carpenters were clever. The joins hide the door. Make no sounds. I wonder how my little son, Telemachus, is now. But a crying little babe, when I last held you in my arms, there upon the beach of Ithaca, trying to make out as if I were mad, so I would not have to come to this fruitless ward in the first place. You were so little you could barely lift your head. But now you're ten years old. <laughs> and you're running, running upon the beaches. And you're casting your spear into the oncoming breakers. <laughs> and you're trying to catch deer in the wood. 
frightened that you can't catch them yet because you're only 10 years old and there is no father there to teach you how. And I miss my son and I must leave this place and if this Odysseus, yes, serpents coming from the sea, they're wrapping around the priests. What are they doing? They're dragging the priests into the sea. Odysseus, the priests, they're gone. <sighs> Good. Thank you, Athena, thank you. Thank you. greatest warrior upon the field. He finally took Hector, even. Uh, and yet, standing there, the poison arrow in his heel, the one place, dipped by his mother Thetis in the river Styx, the one place the great and vulnerable Achilles could be killed. Paris shoots the arrow. Now oh, he's a shade. Unfleshed, fled to Hades where pale Persephone reigns. And Ajax, mighty Ajax, <laughs> second only upon the battlefield. And what did they do? When, when Achilles died, what did they do? They held up his armor and said, Who shall have this armor most feared upon the plain of Ilion? Who shall have it? and said, some of them, well, give it to Odysseus, he's clever. And the other half said, no, no, give it to Ajax, his brawn is second to none. And so they gave it to me. And Ajax killed himself. Which is better, brawn or wit? And all the others, mighty Agamemnon, fine men. We shall see what we shall see. Odysseus, we're moving. Yes, yes. So it was, as Odysseus and the squad of Greek soldiers crouched in the belly of the horse made of wood, felt it shudder and move. He knew they were being drawn across the plain toward the great gate of Troy. Once Odysseus had stolen into Troy, disguised as a beggar, and there he had stolen the palladium of Athena herself, for Athena watched over Odysseus. He knew. He knew the city. They were taken to the great central square, and the Trojans rejoiced. The Achaeans at last were gone. The men left their places on the ramparts. They left the gate unguarded. And although a wild woman cried, no, 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 from high on the battlements, no one listened. And overjoyed, the Trojans celebrated. They drank wine 
and they burned offerings to their gods. And they danced in the streets, not knowing that in the square, in the darkness, treachery waited, crouched, all the metal wrapped in woolen blankets. And as Odysseus and his men waited, they felt a darkness fall upon them most profound, the darkness of night made darker by the blackness of their hiding place. Until in the wee hours of the morning, after all the dwellers of the city had fallen asleep, they heard a sound. Shh! What's that? Shh! Quiet, quiet! It's the door. It's the door. Sinon. Sinon, is that you? Hi, Odysseus. Ah. They thought you were traitor. <laughs> Good. Now you all know what to do, as swiftly as you can, to the gates. The entire fleet will have sailed back under cover of darkness. The army should be waiting for us. Quickly, to the gates, to the gates! And as if the mighty Trojan horse were giving birth in the dark square, <laughs> forms fell to the wide stones of the square and dashed off toward the gates. And as Odysseus and his men ran to the mighty doors and swung them wide, there, massed outside by the thousands, waited the Greek soldiers. They had beached their ships and marched across the dark plain, and into the city they swept. They burned the temple. They killed the sleeping Trojan soldiers in their barracks. They chased women and children through the streets. Others from Troy escaped through the secret back gates of the city. And in one night, the mighty city of Asia Minor, that had withstood the Achaean siege for 10 years, was reduced to a flaming memory. That's just the beginning of the enormous story of the Odyssey, that version of the beginning of that story told for you with such energy and also such music by Odds Bodkin, the wonderful musical storyteller. The belly of the horse, he calls that beginning to the Odyssey. We hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. You know, it brings back memories for me of when I was in high school in 1987. Under the Christmas tree, there was a copy of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, left there for me by my aunt, my Aunt Anne, who had just taken a job as an English teacher. And when I opened the cover of the book, there was a note in there from my Aunt Anne that said, one of my biggest surprises of 1997 is that this is actually a pretty good story. Well, I still have that old copy of the Odyssey on my shelf. Sometimes we're scared away from ancient texts just by their sheer age. But once we get down into some of those classic stories, we discover that they haven't survived for thousands of years for nothing. Always a pleasure to hear an Odds Bodkin 
tale. And we're going to wrap up today with a story from uh, Linda Gorham. This is a story called Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew. And uh, again, this is a story from Linda Gorham. And in this story, a five-year-old who hates eating the most delicious foods reveals his own peculiar tastes. What exactly is it that he wants to eat? You're going to find out in this story. This is a story for any picky eater. I got to admit that there have been eras in my life when I've been just that person. Again, the name of the story is Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew. And at the end of a great hour of stories, we're going to bring you this one. Linda Gorham on the Appleseed. Happy to bring it to you. His name was Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew. He was a nice boy, five years old. You would have liked him because he was sweet, he was good, oh, and he loved to sing. But there was one problem with Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew. He didn't like to eat. Nothing. Not even oh, hamburgers. Not even hot dogs. Not pizza. Not chicken. Not even chicken fingers. Not spaghetti. Not macaroni and cheese. He did not like any of that stuff. Oh, his mother would say, eat your food. But he never did. And his mother, oh, she'd put her hands on her hips and she would say to him almost every day, Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew, what are we going to do with you? Well, one day, out of the blue, Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew started to sing. I love to eat eat, eat, mushrooms and anchovies. I love to eat, 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 mushrooms and anchovies. I love to eat, 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 mushrooms and anchovies. Because they taste so good. His mother couldn't believe it. You love to eat what? Did you say mushrooms and anchovies? And Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew, he nodded his head. Really, said his mother. Mm, mm, mm. She called his father into the kitchen. She said, you won't believe it. Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew said he loves to eat mushrooms and anchovies. What, said his father. Well, his mother and his father put their hands on their hips and they both said, Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew, what are we going to do with you? Well, since he said he liked them, Samuel's father, he ran out to the store to buy some mushrooms and anchovies for Samuel to eat. While he was gone, Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew started singing again. I love to eat, eat, eat onions and sardines. I love to eat, eat, eat onions and sardines. I love to eat eat, eat onions and sardines because they taste so good. His mother couldn't believe it. You love to eat what? Onions and sardines? And where is that music coming from? Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew nodded his head once again. His mother called his brothers and sisters into the kitchen. She said, can you believe it? 
Samuel Gerardo Jonathan Drew says he loves to eat onions and sardines. What? said his brothers and sisters. They all put their hands on their hips and they said, Samuel Geraldo, Jonathan Drew, what are we going to do with you? Well, since he said he liked them so much, Samuel's brothers and sisters ran out to the store to buy some onions and sardines. While they were gone, Samuel Geraldo, Jonathan Drew started singing again. I love to eat, 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 liver and spinach. I love to eat, 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 liver and spinach. I love to eat, 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 liver and spinach. Because they taste so good. His mother couldn't believe it. Liver and spinach? Oh, yuck. You really like that? His mother got on the phone. She called the doctor. The doctor rushed over right away. The mother and the doctor put their hands on their hips and they said, Samuel, Geraldo, Jonathan, Drew, what are we going to do with you? But he said he liked them, so the doctor left to go to the store to buy some spinach and liver for Samuel, Geraldo, Jonathan, Drew. You know what happened next. While he was gone, Samuel, Geraldo, Jonathan, Drew started singing again. I love to eat, eat, eat ketchup and mustard. I love to eat, eat, eat ketchup and mustard. I love to eat, eat, eat ketchup and mustard. Because they taste so good. His mother couldn't believe it. Ketchup and mustard? Oh, you've got to be kidding. And what is it with that music? Well, his mother called his grandmother into the kitchen. His grandmother and his mother put their hands on their hips and they both said, Samuel, Geraldo, Jonathan, Drew, what are we going to do with you? Just then, everyone came back home. The father, he had mushrooms and anchovies. The sisters and brothers, they had onions and sardines. The doctor, he had liver and spinach. His grandmother knew what to do. She took all of those grocery bags. She pulled out the mushrooms, the anchovies, the onions, the sardines, the liver, and the spinach. She put it all into a great big pot. Then she went to the pantry. She took out two big jars of ketchup and mustard, and she added them to the pot. Ooh. And then she added some garlic and some pepper and just a touch of salt. It smelled like mushrooms, anchovies, onions, sardines, liver, spinach, garlic, ketchup, mustard, pepper, and just a touch of salt. She cooked it up real good, and she put it in a bowl, and she gave it to Samuel, Geraldo, Jonathan, Drew. Everybody watched as the boy looked at the soup. Mmm, mmm. And then they watched as he picked up the bowl. Mmm, mmm. And then he smelled the soup. Mmm, mmm. And then he dumped it all over his head. And that's the story I have for you, the story of Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew.
Samuel Geraldo Jonathan Drew, a story from Linda Gorham. What a pleasure to bring that story to you on the heels of that wonderful telling of uh, just the beginning part of the Odyssey. And, of course, you heard a conversation with the wonderful Philadelphia storyteller Ed Stivender. It was a pleasure to chat with him. And, of course, at the top of the hour, you heard The Red Ball, a story from Massachusetts storyteller Jay O'Callaghan. That from a collection of stories called Around the Year with Jay O'Callaghan. We even took a bike ride down to Country Corner, the gas station, the convenience store that was always kind of the dream uh, destination when we were little kids. We hope that some of the stories that we've brought you today have sparked memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love as stories. You can reach out to us at our email address, theappleseed at byu.edu. And of course, you can uh, visit us at byuradio.org slash appleseed for all kinds of great stuff, including Appleseed Extras, many episodes of the show, just a single story long, just a few minutes, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. If you go there today, you'll find Anansi and the Whipping Cord, an Anansi story about the trickster spider told for you by the wonderful St. Louis storyteller Bobby Norfolk, and you won't want to miss that. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.